humans, we, 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 li we like that. We, we, we born with trust. I mean, it's what we do. You know, we kind of go and do things because we believe it's going to be okay. And, and that's, yeah. yeah, you've got to believe. You've just got to get out there and go and do it and find out what happens. So, yeah, that's a, been a wonderful project. And I, I just, it's my most exciting project of all because it's really about trying to find trying to find the character of that vineyard and trying to pinpoint so that all those wines one two three four eventually five six seven will all have a line running through them because they come from the same vineyard today i'm talking to ken forrester director and winemaker at ken forrester winery Ken, it's so lovely to meet you here on Zoom. Yeah, nice to see you. Thank you very much. Thanks. For, I'm interested to hear what, 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 what you're looking to do. Yeah. Um, are, you in your, are you in your tasting room? I'm, I'm in my office. We have a, a big office um, set up here, which is actually the boardroom. My office, okay. is wherever I am, I could be in the vineyard or the tasting room or the winery or here, but I don't spend too much time sitting behind the desk. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, no, but I'm so interested in hearing about uh, your um, work as a winemaker and also the wines that you're making, um, because I'm fascinated by the the idea that winemaking is is not just a science; it's a form of art as well. So um, I want to hear your opinion about that also. No, there's there's no doubt about it. I mean, it's. Um... The level of art, artistry is always subject to some sort of debate because at which point does the winemaker uh, change what nature is giving you um, and how, how much do you change it? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? And is there acceptable change and unacceptable change? So there's a lot of debate about the winemaker's level of interference in winemaking. My view is that we are custodians of nature and that it is our role to interpret the fruit in the simplest way possible. That's so, right. Yeah. So how did you, how did you become, uh, what was the inspiration for you to become the winemaker? I, I just had a passion for wines. Um, I loved food and wine. Um, I had restaurants. I was um, trained in hotel management. I spent a lot of time chefing, I was cooking, um, preparing meals. And winemaking and chefing are not very different. You've got to have fine ingredients. You've got to have, um, at the end of the day, you need to create balance and texture. And texture is a critical aspect of food and of wine. If I say to you that of all the food that you really love and don't love, particularly the food that you don't love, it's probably not about the flavor, but about the texture. And we, we, we're very tactile creatures. I mean, right through this pandemic, we were kind of not allowed to touch, not allowed to hug. Well, you know, that, that was crazy because, I mean, shaking hands and hugging is, is part of what we, what we are. And so we're very tactile creatures. And I think texture is a very important aspect of flavor and how we perceive 
what we're tasting, what we're eating and drinking. Well, you're mentioning now something very interesting about uh, during the pandemic that we weren't allowed to touch and, and have close contact. And it's actually something that I found during the interviews that I did with um, mostly artists during the lockdown time, that they reverted to cooking and baking and, uh, you know, and, and now you, you're almost now connecting this, this why, you know, why yeah. is it? And this could be also, I mean, I thought it was part of creating because they, they used to create and, and be creative. But this could also now be a, a wonderful, um, um, yeah, revelation think, for me. I think the essence of cooking and baking is ultimately that you're sharing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's unlikely that you cook for yourself or bake a whole loaf of bread for yourself. It would be something that you would share. And I think that perhaps that was... Um, a replacement for the kind of that we couldn't touch each other, couldn't be so close to each other. You could share food, you could share bread. Yeah. And I also spoke to a winemaker um, here in Europe, and and he sort of had it, you know, like the philosophy behind wine. And there was also this thing that he said that wine is is about sharing, and that you can. Actually, the wine that you drink also connects with the time of your life, you know, and you can sometimes remember certain things because of that wine. You know, if you drink the wine, it takes you back into a memory. No, oh, yeah, with, without a doubt. Special bottles of wine, special wines, and in fact, not so special wines. I mean, how many Stellenbosch students connect with Tussenberg? You know, because oh. that's what it was. It was Chateau Libertas. You know, that's what it was. So... Yeah, I think wine and, and memories of make make you they're a big part of our life, without a doubt. But now you said you were in the hotel industry and and you were also um, in a restaurant. So was it a later stage in your life that you started being interested in wine making, the making itself? Yeah, it was. A, I was about thirty five years old, and um, we. It had come down to Cape Town to a wedding, my wife and I, from Johannesburg. And Mr. Mandela was out of jail. We, he was going to be our, our next prime minister. We were headed to our first democratic elections in 1994. And this was in November 1993. And I was showing my wife, all my friends in the wine farms and all my guys that I was buying wine from, and we were with Yanni Elbrecht at um, Dresden Freire. And I said to Yanni, you know, isn't there a lovely farm for sale here that just needs some loving care? And he said, there's a rundown place just down the road. But he said, yo, you're never going to plant Cabernet on those soils. Those, those aren't the kind of soil that you need for Cabernet. So I said, that's interesting. Let's go and look at it. And we came to have a look at this property. And we bought it. We bought it on a public auction. Like I said to my wife, let's just buy the biggest piece of land that we can't afford. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> you've got to have some risk. You've got to have some excitement. You've got to, you know, if you're not close to the edge, you're nowhere. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. 
But now, did you then have, were you then a qualified winemaker? Did you know what? I've never been a qualified winemaker. <laughs> <laughs> I love this more. <laughs> never been a qualified winemaker. Never wanted to be a qualified okay. winemaker. Oh my goodness, this this sounds amazing. But okay, so you learned by doing. I had a very good mentor in Martin Minot. I worked in France with Bernard Germain at Chateau de Fell. I worked with Pierre Soleil. I went to go and see Mr. Nicolas Joly. Um, we went around the vineyards. We went worked in around the world. I made some wine in California. And uh, yeah, for me, it was just basically learning on the job and trying to translate that fruit into the best wine I could. It, this is a very, um, I find this also very fascinating because I've also spoken to artists, uh, uh, an actor that never went to acting school that just to, you know, sort of learned by doing it, you know, by going on auditions and just learning on on his way. And then also artists, you know, like the painters that just taught themselves and so. And I wonder if they, that brings in a kind of freedom, you know, that you don't know the exact rules. So you, you, uh, you know, you sort of, you're more open to experiment. I think that that's undoubtable. I think that that's definitely true. And the fact that I had no formal grounding, no formal education in winemaking means that I have a different view to a lot of the formal kind of trained winemakers on the use of sulfur, for example. I just don't use very much sulfur at all. It's never been, I was never taught that you use sulfur at every opportunity for everything possible. And it's always good for your wine. I, I just think sulfur is terrible stuff. It tastes awful. Um, the, the chemistry of it worries me. So, for example, I just have a very, very low sulfur regime where we're using absolutely no sulfites whatsoever prior to fermentation. A lot of people prior to fermentation are already dosing the grapes, the fresh fruit, with sulfite just to keep it fresh, just so that you don't have any oxidation taking place. I don't do that. Um, we have wines which we make in a completely natural way with no sulfur additions whatsoever. And the wines that we make for the commercial market, there's sulfur, but we try and keep those sulfur additions to an absolute minimum. And it's not just the sulfites. I have different views. I mean, when I started off, we've been going for about three or four years. And I said to Martin Minot, my friend and mentor, I said, what are we going to have to do? Tell me how we're going to go about making the best white wine in the world. And he said to me, hey, you've only just been here. You've only just got here. You've only been here three years. And I said, so what's that got to do with anything? Have I got to be here nine years, eight years, seven years? Is there a magic number? When do you make the best white wine? Is there a magic number? Well, I mm -hmm. said, forget it. Let's go make the best wine. And it was just having those, that kind of freedom to think I could do whatever I wanted to do. Yeah. And fortunately, I had a really good friend, or I have a very good friend like Martin, who just made sure I didn't get into too much trouble. Oh, Not okay. too much trouble. But, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think this is because you you think 
uh, yeah, I think that is you, you don't know the boundaries, so you think so much outside of of this the structure that yeah, I'm a bit like that because I'm a self-taught photographer. So okay. um, I'm also a bit of a cowboy in that sense. Um, you know, I okay. I just go around shooting <laughs> with my camera, of course. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> I have you absolutely. <laughs> but um, so now this farm that you then took, uh, did you have already then vineyards? You said it was a rundown farm. Was there existing vineyards was, that you could use? Yeah, it was fifty hectares of vineyard. Or 50 hectares of, of property with about 42 hectares of vineyard, um, a completely derelict homestead built in 1694. Uh, mm -hmm. The walls are a meter thick. Um, the roof had caved in on the house. The house was in inside the house was underwater, 40, 40 millimeters thick. Um, it was it hadn't been lived in for six years. So it had been vandalized quite severely. And we just set about, my wife fortunately is, is very good with, with um, building and, and renovating. And she got involved and she had a little company, in fact, that used to do bathrooms and kitchens as a speciality. So she took it upon herself so that she could renovate the house. And I took it upon myself to look after the vineyards and to fix the vineyards. And we had vines planted way back from 1970. And some of those vines we still have. Some we've had to replace over the years. We've replanted about 50% of the property. And we still have beautiful old bush vine, Chenin Blanc, that we use for our FMC. Our sparkling wine, in fact, is made from an a, a, um, old vineyard planted in 1974. So we've still got a lot of old vineyards and really, really good fruit. Great site, great, great place to grow white, grow grapes and make wine. So, yeah, because I saw you were part of the Old Vine project. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Old Vine, um, Old Vines are really interesting. And um, without a doubt, they can be truly exceptional. But you've got to make sure that they've been looked after properly, that, they, that, the, that the Old Vines have, in fact, um, been kind of nurtured and, and kept carefully, that's important. You know, not all old people are entirely knowledgeable. Not all old vines are yeah. really good. <laughs> got to find a balance there. Got to be, yeah. yeah. But I'm very fascinated about the old vines and the old vine project. And I also spoke to Etienne Nietling, uh, the viticulturist, about that. Um, yeah. And it seems that South Africa is quite ahead with with really pre preserving or really uh, um, showing the advantages of preserving these old vines? We've done very well in as much as what we've done is we've formalized it. The French and Italians for years and years and years have been talking about old vines on their labels, but without any formal measurement. So when they talk Biavin on the label, it could mean anything. However, we've gone and, and come up with a minimum age of 35 years, but there's no maximum. And I have to say, there's a lot of old vines in Europe, in France, in Spain, in Italy. There's a lot of old vineyard material. 
Um, uh, some of it considerably older than South Africa. They probably have more of the very oldest vines that we don't have. We, because of our climate, because of our weather, we expect vines to get to about 60 or 70 years old. They don't get much older. At that point, you're looking at 1% or 2% that gets older than 70 years. In France, in Europe, I would say that 1% is probably 3% or 4%. It's okay. much more. The oldest vines, they have a lot more than what we have. But now, it's... sorry? I've been fortunate enough to to be up in um, the southern Rhone, or in fact, the middle Rhone, up near Gigonda's um, Chateau saint Combe, where they have a 12th century chapel, a chapel, a little church, and they're looking up to the Mont Dantil, and they have a Grenache vineyard right outside that chapel that is over 100 years old. Now, that's oh. unlikely. That doesn't happen in South Africa. We don't have any producing vineyards that are over 100 years old, no. So what would be the reason for that? What happens after, say, 60 years to the to the vineyard or the, the, the vine? Our climate, our African climate is more severe. We have more sunshine. We have less cool. We have less snow. So it's, it's a different climate. And it's just the climate doesn't allow. It's just, okay. that's all it is, just about climate. So now, and, and after 30 years, if you say it's registered uh, as an old vine, then at, at 30 years, um, and between 30 and, say, 60 years, does it uh, produce the same amount of um, grape then still, or does it gradually decline? Uh, it definitely declines. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you would say at 30 years or, or say 35 years, that would be then the peak? Probably, yes. It's probably, in fact, your peak is probably slightly earlier, about 25 years. Your okay. vineyard at 25 years old will probably be at its maximum production. And mm -hmm. after 25 years, it'll be. But that's, it's a bit of a generalization. It's not the same for all vineyards in all, all places. It's, okay. it's general. But now, where are where are you situated? What is the climate like where you are? Well, that's interesting because we are Stellenbosch, but Stellenbosch is big because Stellenbosch goes from the Hottentotsholland Mountains in the east to False Bay in the south, all the way to almost Dikrafir in the west, and all the way to the N1 in the north. Now, that's a very big region. And across that region is probably 50 kilometers square. It's probably 50 kilometers by 50 kilometers wide. Um, and the climate's not the same. Because if you're right next to the ocean, you have a certain climate. And if you're on top of the Helderberg Mountain, you have a certain climate. Oh. And if you're on the Simonsburg Mountain, you have a certain climate. And if you're on the back of the Simonsburg, not looking down at Stellenbosch, but looking back towards um, Franschhoek, you have a completely different climate. You know, So there's not one climate. Where we are, towards the ocean, we have what is referred to as a Mediterranean climate, where we have long, dry summers. We have a rainfall, average rainfall of around about 600 
to 650 millimeters per year. We have cold, wet winters, snow on the ground every 10 years, and snow on the mountaintops almost every year. Typical Mediterranean climate. But that Mediterranean climate doesn't go all the way to the other side of Stellenbosch. That's a different climate at that point. Oh, I see. Okay. So um, does that affect then how you make wine or when you harvest compared to other parts of Stellenbosch? 100%. Very much so. There you are. But that effect could be felt right across the road. I could have Chenin Blanc planted here and I have a neighbor across the road half a kilometer away who has Chenin Blanc and we'll harvest on different days because we're different yeah. soils, different radiation, different aspect. He's facing southeast, I'm facing northwest. So it, every bit, everything changes. There's, I have two Chenin Blanc vineyards on the farm, on the property here in the vineyard, where the corners of the two vineyards, they're like two squares where the corners touch each other just at that point. That's the only place they touch. But those two vineyards are so different that I can't make the same wine from both vineyards. Incredible. And, yeah, and, and the soil then? Fairly consistent, fairly the mm. same. Doesn't mm. change. So it's so it's really the weather. It's really the or the climate then uh, in that case, then and not the soil that that affects that the wine. Well, it's it's a combination of all those things. It's not one thing. It was okay. I say the thing about winemaking is that if we work really hard and we try very hard, we might know how to ask a thousand questions to get a thousand answers. Mm -hmm. But I think there are probably ten thousand questions that need to be asked, and we don't know the other 9,000. Yeah. But now, in the process of making wine all these years, um, the, and the climate changes from year to year, uh, how, uh, how adaptable do you have to be as a winemaker? Because you have to, can you predict already, say, in the beginning of the season, and looking at the wine, uh, at the grapes, what, what is it going to happen? No, you have no, you have no, uh, no, you have to be totally, totally adaptable. You've got to deal with what nature gives you. You have no control. You have absolutely no control. Right down to the, the week before you harvest the fruit, you still don't know if it's going to rain in that final week or not, or how much it's going to rain. You have no control whatsoever. I mean, you have to be totally adaptable, without a doubt. You go crazy if you're not. Um, and now, in the process, when when you start making the wine, tell me about your. You say you you like to work naturally and to let the grapes depict what you do. So, what uh, what's your fermentation process like then? We we look. We want to start our fermentation off as cool as possible. So. Mm -hmm want that fruit to be really fresh when it comes into the winery. So what happens is we'll start harvesting at daybreak, at sunrise. We People are here having coffee, getting ready before the sun comes up in the morning. And by sunrise, we start harvesting. And we take that fruit in 20 kilo boxes, and we put that fruit into a cold room. We stack it in a cold room. And we leave it there overnight. And tomorrow morning, we can guarantee that that fruit will be at about four degrees. 
And we take that fruit at four degrees and put it into, the, bring it to the cellar, and then we start processing that fruit. Whether we're putting it into a destalker, a crusher, destemmer, whether we, we're pressing it for the whites, um, we're dealing with fresh, cold juice that A, at that temperature, doesn't, oxi doesn't oxidize readily, and you're preserving all of the fruit flavors that I think are so important in wine. You know, the last time I checked, a simple test, if you go, is wine animal, mineral, vegetable, fruit? Good, it's fruit. Last time I checked, it was fruit. So if we're making wine with fruit, wouldn't it be fun if it tasted like fruit rather than wood or anything else? So we use a very limited amount of new oak. We're not, not big fans of new oak at all. We do have some wines, but in order to get old oak, you've got to start with new oak. You can't necessarily just buy old barrels. Oh, so yeah. buy some new barrels. And fermentation, we use wild yeasts as far as possible. 90% of my production is native, spontaneous wild yeast fermentation. So there's no added yeast then. You you leave the yeast that's on the fruit. Correct. And how can you control that? Or is it because of you, the fact that you cool it beforehand? I don't want to control that. Okay. Why would I want to control it? I want what the yeast does. I want the effect of the yeast. Mm -hmm. So we allow the yeast to find the sugar, the glucose, sucrose, fructose in the juice and to break down that sugar and take those 12 chain carbon compounds and create alcohol out of them. And what we can do is control the temperature of the fermentation to a degree. But we don't have absolute control. And if we're fermenting, for example, in old barrels, it's very hard to chill a barrel. You don't have cooling on a barrel. You can, oh, yeah. if, you're, if you're in a large stainless steel tank, you have a jacket on the tank that you can cool the tank down and keep the tank at a fairly constant temperature. But you don't have that luxury in a barrel. The barrel has to be controlled at the ambient temperature around the barrel in the cellar. So our cellar generally is about 14, 15 degrees, <clears throat> which means that a, a barrel could get up to about 22, 23 degrees in fermentation. Really? No. Oh, so the process, the fermentation process also heats then up the, the wine. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. <clears throat> Very much so. Yeah. yeah, because this is, is this a, 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 a sort of a, a normal thing to do to cool the grapes before you start making the wine? Because a you always have this idea people just harvest and start working on it. When you, when you ask, is wine a form of art? Mm -hmm. It's like saying to a painter, is it normal to use blue paint? Well, okay. yeah. uh, yes. Any, if for some people, for other people, no. It, yeah. it really, there's no normal. It's not as though you must do that. No, that would be that would be boring. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm. Yeah, no, that's true. And you say you use barrels, so you don't uh, use terracotta and uh, all different tanks that they. Talking I'm, about now? I'm, I'm not on that. I'm not on that. Uh, I think it's a bit of a fashion. I'm, yeah. I'm quite happy with the effect that I get from barrels. 
and where I want purity and um, control, then we'll use a tank because I can control the temperature on the tank. Okay. Mm. So now tell me a little bit about your wines. Oh, are the labels, uh, is there a story behind your wines? Well, uh, the story behind the wines is um, really about making the best wine we can from the fruit that we've got. I mean, each wine itself is unique. Each wine has its very own story. I don't have a story. Um, yeah. We have um, each, it's like, you know, each of your children is utterly unique. You yeah. know, we have, we have eight dogs. I promise you, every single dog in this house is utterly unique. Yeah. No, not two. I mean, so every wine has its very own story, and the reason perhaps why you made it, and why you know how you made it, and why you made it like that, and what you expect that wine to do. So each wine in itself, and and you know over the years, I mean, currently we have a range of about 15 or 16 wines. And if we went through each one, you would need to spend a whole day here. This really? would take you absolutely. I'm coming. I'm, I'm yeah, coming. Yeah. It take you all day. <laughs> <coughs> come, come and see. I'm coming, yes. I want to hear the story of each wine. But no. also that, um, this is also interesting that that um, I've spoken to young winemakers as well and, and the, the labels also, you know, people are spending so much time on creating lovely labels to also connect with this idea of the wine, you know, what the story about the wine is. More and more and more, I see um, artwork on labels, specifically artwork as opposed to calligraphy. Um, we started in an era when most labels were calligraphy. It was just that that, that was what you did. You put your name or you put you put the words on the label to explain what this thing was inside. Nowadays, yeah. it's all, I mean, Chateau Mouton Rothschild, I think I could be corrected. I think they were the first artwork label, and that started in 1945. So it's not so new. They've been around a while doing that sort of thing. But we decided to, to kind of, our labels are fairly formal, fairly cons um, conservative, where we merely give you the brand and we tell you what's in the bottle, et cetera, et cetera. We've got some other product, um, different wines where we've explored going out of out of our kind of zone into doing different labels. And we've got we've got some, I mean, I think some incredibly different labels. We have a wine called stained glass, which goes back to we have um in in the office here and, and in the winery, we have stained glass windows made by the most incredible stained glass artist. And these are biggish windows that are about one and a half meters round and done with leaded stained glass, the proper beautiful stained glass, and they really are. And both of those windows are themed around the, the concept of the endless knot, the, the cross in the form of a knot or a, that has no end, that mm. you can never come to the end of time or to the end of, of that that continuum. And so we've called the one wine stained glass, and we've used the, the actual window as the as the concept for the artwork and put a rendition of that artwork into the label. And then we have another wine which when everybody was making natural wines, and I was sort of a little puzzled about what this concept of natural meant. And I was asking them, 
I was told, well, you use wild yeast to ferment. And I'm going, yeah, we've been doing that for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we don't filter. I'm going, oh, we've been doing that for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And we don't add anything. We've been doing that for 25 years. <laughs> and it was a bit of a puzzle. And then they said, but we also go through malolactic fermentation because we don't stop the wine from going into malolactic. We don't control that, that aspect. So I thought, well, that could be quite interesting. Um, it's an opportunity for wines to turn to vinegar if you're not careful in malolactic fermentation. And so I thought, let's make a wine where we're going to have to keep it a little quiet. We don't want to tell anybody about it. And it's got to be a dirty wine with, with no filtration, no fining. So it's going to be a dirty wine. So it became the dirty little secret, I'm afraid. And that's the label. Really? It's just... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love your style. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the most expensive in the country. And I took it a step further where obviously I thought Chenin Blanc would be the right grapes to use. But where, what Chenin Blanc, where would I find a unique vineyard? And I managed to find a vineyard planted in 1959. A bush vine bit with no irrigation, standing up on a hillside at 640 meters, looking down onto the west coast, looking down to Elon's Bay. That this vineyard literally looks down to the ocean, and the day night temperature change in this vineyard could be more than 20 degrees. You could be there in the middle of a summer's day, and it's 35. And that night, the temperature is 12 degrees in the vineyard. Wow. Like, it's really cold. And that change of temperature is really beneficial for the, for the vine because it gets dew in the morning. And so that vine starts its day off covered in droplets of dew and fresh and not, not hot. So as it goes through the day, it's got all that water to use up first, and it does. It transpires. And so we ended up getting the fruit from that vineyard managing the vineyard, pruning the vineyard, farming the vineyard, getting that fruit, making the wine only in old wooden barrels, native yeast, wild yeast fermentation, all the way through malolactic fermentation, no fining, no um, um, filtration, and keeping the wine in barrel, and then going back next year and getting the wine, and the following year and getting the wine, and the following year. So we now have four years of wine in barrel, and then we take the majority of the new wine and blend it with the old wines that for four wow. years. And one wine. So this wine is never a vintage. On the label, it doesn't say 2020. It says number one. And the next is number two, number three. And we've just put number four into the marketplace. So this is our fourth. Amazing. And there's four or five vintages in every wine. So it's from one vineyard, four vintages in one bottle. This is amazing. But Ken, isn't it very uh, daring to do that? I mean, how did you how did you know it will be this outcome? <laughs> we don't. We don't. Yeah. <laughs> we don't. It's a gamble. But, Humans, we, 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 like, we like that. We, we, we born with trust. I mean, it's what we do. You know, we kind of go and 
do things because we believe it's going to be okay. And and that's, yeah. yeah, you've got to believe. You've just got to get out there and go and do it and find out what happens. So, yeah, that's a, been a wonderful project. And I, I just, it's my most exciting project of all because it's really about trying to find trying to find the character of that vineyard and trying to pinpoint so that all those wines, one, two, three, four, eventually five, six, seven, will all have a line running through them because they come from the same vineyard. But now you must have had, if you had this idea of, okay, so you're going to try that, did the result, um, was it to your expectation? You know, I would say yes, resoundingly. It was possibly better than I expected. Working uh -huh. completely naturally with no sulfur additions um, heightens the wine. The wine itself has incredible life when you taste it. There's an incredible zing on the wine. Um, definitely working naturally has its advantages. And having the ability to call on four vintages and put that together gives you an opportunity to fill lots of little holes and, and to cover little cracks that you end up with a very rich, soft, very round wine, a very complete wine. So no, I think it's it's been fascinating and, and a learning curve every year. It's not done because you still got the fruit from four years in barrels and you've got the fruit coming and you need to keep all of that working and all of that coming together in some way. It's fascinating. Wow, this is, um, I mean, this is very daring, I think, because it's also financially a risk, isn't it? For yeah, you? We, we've um, over, we've had the vineyard since 2015 was my first year that I got the vineyard. And so in seven years, this is our fourth, fourth release. And if you look at four batches of wine, the most we've ever produced is number four, which is 2,400 liters. Um, it's six barrels of wine, 2,400, about 3,000 bottles of wine. So four releases of about 8,000 bottles in total to date over seven years is just about 1,000 bottles a year is all we're producing out of this vineyard. The rest of the fruit from that vineyard is being declassified into another wine. So okay. we certainly, yeah, we're certainly not getting that sort of return out of it. And we're paying absolutely top, top dollar for that fruit. You know, that's what it is. Mm. But now, um, is there some time, was there some time in this process where you, because you really do, you're doing your own thing and you, you're going your own way. And was there some time where you uh, sort of uh, doubted, you know, or you think, hey, is this really going to work or are you just going for it? Not. Okay. No. And I think that's, that's because I wasn't classically trained as a winemaker. No. I think if you have those restrictions, if you have that in your mind that this is all you can do, you know, you're limited by the fact that you've been taught that's all you can do. Yeah. Um, 
And I've never, unfortunately, I, I never had that. So for me, I was very fortunate. I think that I was sufficiently untrained to do some fairly irrational things. Perhaps I'm blending four vintages of white wine. Most people look at me and shake their heads. They go, and... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you proved them wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is as long as you're having fun and at the end of the day you know if you find if you can if you can possibly love what you do and yeah. find a way to make that you know how you make a living you'll never work a day in your life so exactly. for me yeah. every day just experiments and every day is just once again to kind of see what else we can possibly do and and you know we this time now during lockdown and the pandemic, etc., was wonderful in the way, and, and certainly it had all of its issues. I don't take away any of the pain that it brought, but it was wonderful in a way that we could focus on the vineyards, we could focus in the in the winery. I could spend a lot more time in the winery. Um, we didn't have the distractions and have to travel, you know. So it was very much a, a lot of time in the winery. So much so that we have a young winemaker. Um, a fellow by the name of Sean Matesa, who's now been with me for eight years, came out of college, local kid, um, really super young guy. And um, I said to him, you know, you, all you've learned for eight years is what I'm doing, and you're copying and pasting, copying and pasting. I want to see what you do, and I want you to start off making some wines in your own style, develop your own style, and make some small batches. We can work with one or two or three barrels at a time and start off and make a small batch. And we'll see how these wines go and start off working with one grape sort at a time. So we're working with Syrah, with Grenache, with um, Sanso, so far three red wines that he's made. And we they don't really fit into our range because our range is for lack of a better description, small, medium, large, they kind of cheap everyday commercial wines is our reserve range and then our top wines. So this doesn't really fit in. So we've labeled, we've created a label called the Misfits. And oh, okay. Wines are called the Misfits and yeah. they're sing, single cultivar and he's done a fantastic job with these. So yeah. have now some sexy little wines in small parcels that we can take to a customer, we can take to sommeliers and say, this is what we've done. And it's very, very funky, young style, lots of fruit on the wine, very little oak on the wine and really interesting stuff. So that's part of what's come out of the whole pandemic. Also to that end, in that time, we spent a lot more time in the vineyards. Our vines, our vineyards are looking fantastic. We've never seen them looking so good. We've been working on a program to try and define regenerative viticulture. People are talking about organics and biodynamics. And I'm saying, oh, let's, let's focus on regenerative viticulture. And how do we define that? What do we do that's good for the soil that keeps the soil going and adds value generation after generation? We want to have this regenerative viticulture we want to plant cover crops in the soil without tilling mm. the soil because if you run through the soil with a hoe, what happens is you, you create a, a shelf just 
40 centimeters or 40 millimeters into the ground, you create a hard compacted shelf and all the soil on the top is loose, but everything below is compacted and solid and, and very unhealthy for the soil because you don't have any transfer of nutrients or anything else. So we want that soil to be not compacted. We want to grow multiple different crops in the vineyards because what we've done is remove everything from that land and planted a monoculture of just vines. And those vines are gonna take the same nutrients out every year and oh, yeah. new the soils. So we go and we plant into that soil every year in the winter when the vine is dormant, now the vines are sleeping our winter. And mm. during that time, we're planting seven or eight different plants, different legumes, different um, wheat, barley, oats, uh, clovers. Mm. So all of these different plants that we're putting into the soil are there to take different things out of the soil and to create a balance and to put back because we mow all these plants, we cut them off, and all that mulch goes back into the soil and becomes a slow-release nitrogen fertilizer for the soil. So all of this, plus we have a full composting program where we compost um, all of the stable bedding of 15 horses, all of the wood chips, and all of the horses' um, excrement goes into the composting, and that's the basis of our composting with all of our cuttings and all of our farm waste, all of our vegetal waste goes into that compost, and we end up composting about 5,000 cubic meters of compost a year. It's a, it's wow. a lot of, mm -hmm. goes back into the vineyard every year. So that, that becomes our fertilizer that came out of the vineyard, goes back into the vineyard. And so, That's amazing. Yeah, we're working as closely as possible to trying to be in harmony with nature yeah. and be commercial at the same time, if that's possible. Well, it's almost like a holistic approach, you know, like really thinking about all the aspects <clears throat> of it and not just about the winemaking, but, but really looking at the soil and how to regenerate. That's wonderful. I mean, that would I think yeah. so necessary. We have yeah. to do that. We really have to. We've got to be responsible. We've got to, you know, my, my primary role is to hand this property, this farm on to the next generation, hopefully in better condition than what it was when I got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And do you think that this way of farming and this way of treating the soil will then... I wouldn't say in the next year, but in in years to come, change uh, the the production of the grapes or the the, uh, um, the taste also of the grapes. You know, the effect it has on taste can only be positive, but beyond that, it definitely has an effect on the on the health of yeah. the vineyard, the health of the vine. The vineyard doesn't get sick as easily. Um, the vineyard lives a very healthy life. It has good resistance to any bugs and, and any effects of illness it might have. So ultimately, it's only good for the vineyard. It's mm. very good for the vineyard. And by doing that, we're not spraying all of the chemicals that oh, yeah. has been the rigor 
that's been what people do is, is spray lots of chemicals. You spray against this, you spray against that, you spray against this. It's like getting up every morning and taking 10 different tablets, one for this, one for that, one for this, one for that. At the end of the day, that's got to create some imbalance in your system, you know, and it's got to take away from your natural harmony of, of how your body should function. And in that holistic kind of way, we want to try and treat the vineyard in exactly the same holistic yeah. way. I mean, already, the if, if you look at the... Uh, you know, the research on uh, the biomes in your body, uh, the bioenzymes in your body, and then you think, well, okay, so this also has an effect on what we eat and, and where this comes from. And of course, the soil also have a great impact then on, uh, you know, on these biomes. You know, it's critical what goes on in the soil. I've spoken to producers who tell me that as we have the internet that we can't see, but it's there and we can connect to it, that plants universally are connected through their root systems. We just don't know how to tap into that. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. No, that's true. I've, I've also heard the same thing about, um, you know, that that without us knowing that they are all connected also and fungi, how fungi in a positive way also um, is, is everywhere, you know, and, and yeah. There's a study um, on the underground railroad system, underground train system in Japan and how the underground system was rooted. And what they did was they used fungi to oh, yeah. Put, yeah, and to find out which routes fungi would take from A to B and which way they would go with their with their microbial um, footprint. And then they followed those routes. They used mushrooms to map out the underground. Mm. I heard of that study, yeah. Uh... That's very interesting. Yeah, there's so much going on in the world that we don't understand because yeah. because we taught not to. We're taught yeah. these are this we're given blinkers. We 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 kind of forced into a corridor. And if you're if you're forced down a passageway, you can't yeah. see over the wall, you can't see what else is happening. Mm. And it's good or bad. I'm not sure. It creates focus, perhaps. But I think we need a much broader view. Yeah. What I also find wonderful is that you're now passing this on to your young winemaker. You know, you're giving this him this this opportunity to say, okay, now it's your time to dare, you know, and Ooh, to, absolutely. to do it. And yeah. he better, he better be good at this. You know, he's, we've got a, he's entering this year. We're going to enter into, into the Winemaker of the Year Award for South Africa, and let's see what he does. Let's see how he features against competition. He, yeah. He's very frightened, and I just said to him, go with it. You know, yeah. you'll submit a wine and you'll get some feedback. And we'll work with that feedback for next year. And we'll work with that feedback. And we're going to do this until you win the Winemaker of the Year Award. So get yeah. used to it. You're, you're, so you that's did. really, yeah. 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 And so, yeah, And we can have so much fun. We yeah. can have just so we have a very simple philosophy here in that for our entire business, our entire company, 
behind me is an open plan office where six people are sitting. And that's all of our logistics, all of our marketing, our sales, and our accounting. Now, all of those people are sitting in an open office and they can all hear and see each other. And if there's a problem, they all know about it. If there's something good, they all know about it. You don't have to start sending emails no. from yeah. one desk to the other desk. We yeah. can talk to each other and we do yeah. that. The thing is, um, I have a, a simple philosophy that there, there aren't managers, assistant managers, other managers. We don't delegate down. Every single person has a dedicated role in this, in this organization. And I imagine them to be the links of a chain. And every yeah. link in that chain is critical. Every single person, no matter whether you are here as the janitor to look after the cleanliness of the tasting room or whether you're pouring the wine in the tasting room, what you do is critical. And if you don't do it, you let us down, all yeah. of us. And it goes one step further. And I'll say to people, every year we'll sit down on a kind of one-on-one -on -one with every member of staff. And I'll say to them, tell me how this year has been better than last year. Because I want your year to be better than it was last year. Mm -hmm. I want you to earn more money. I want you to have more free time. I want you to have a better work-life balance. I want you to have a good time at work. You spend yeah. time awake at work than you do at home. Mm -hmm. It better be good. If it's yeah. not good, tell me what I can do. And if I can't help you, you should find somebody else who can. Mm -hmm. So we really do try and play that, that that every year should be a better year than last year. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful way to look at it. And it is true because I think a lot of people are doing jobs that they don't enjoy and that they that's not fulfilling, but they keep to it because maybe of the security of the or the money. Sure. So yeah. But now, Ken, tell me, what are your wishes for the future? You've done so much already. I've got it at some point. I've got to kind of think about what else we're going to do. I've got two grown-up daughters who are both married. And one lives in America. I want to be able to spend some time with her, more time with her. Um, perhaps spend three or four months a year in America and spend the rest of the time here and make some wine while I'm there and make some wine while I'm here. Just wow. a small project, just a small project. <laughs> um, I have a wine that I make in California in Sonoma called The Bridge. It's the bridge between friends, the bridge between continents. So it's kind wow. of a nice feeling. Mm. It's a, and it's 100% Cabernet. Mm. And, and people... I mean, we basically make it and sell it in the USA. I bring a little bit home just to share with friends here. But I mean, it, it's a, a really well-accepted, well-received American cabinet. And people ask me, you know, does it taste American? Well, I'm not sure what that means because do my wines taste South African? You know, I mean, I've made wine in France. I've made wine in America. I make wine here. Do my wines taste South African if I make wine in France? Is there mm -hmm. such a thing? Um, does that exist? I mean, if if um, Picasso was painting in Africa, would his paintings be more African? You mm -hmm. know, I, I, I don't know. So yeah. for me, it's interesting. 
I, I go to the view that it's fruit. I will say that the quality of the Cabernet fruit that I've seen in Sonoma Valley in California is extraordinarily good. It's so good. It, the quality of the fruit is remarkable. Cabernet just loves that climate zone. Whatever they're doing there, it's brilliant. So good quality ingredients, and it translates into wonderful wine, delicious wine. So yeah. So that's your your new uh, new ventures that you are heading for. Oh, we make a little wine there, make a little wine here. Yeah. Just keep everyone happy. <laughs> But um, can I just ask everybody also to do a shout out for a local restaurant or coffee shop? Uh, is there somewhere where you go frequently that you enjoy eating or, or going for a coffee? You know, the, the, the very best chef, I believe, and I get into trouble if I say the very best chef in the whole of Cape Town or the Cape is, is Peter Templeoff. And he's got restaurants like Fane, and and you know he has just done such a good job with every one of his restaurants. Um, I would follow him any restaurant that he opens. I'd be there. I think his food is remarkable. And in the same breath, perhaps the finest chef we've ever seen in the Cape is Frank Dangereau. Frank Dangereau won the top restaurant of the year award, I think six or seven or eight times. And eventually he just said, <clears throat> I don't want to do this for a competition. I do this because I love cooking. And he closed down this very fancy restaurant with loads of bookings. He shut it down and he opened up a very casual restaurant called the Food Barn out in Nurtuk. Oh, and the yes. Food Barn, the Food Barn, you're guaranteed the most beautiful meal anytime you go there. Mm -hmm. And I must admit to I have an interest and I started the business in 1996 when we had the wine we'd been working on the, the wines for about three years and it really looked like we might go completely bankrupt things yeah. were not going and you were spending a lot of money and not selling a lot of wine and when you make wine if you're making a hundred thousand bottles in one vintage you have to make all hundred thousand before you sell bottle number one you can't okay. sell it and pay it at all. So you already own everything when you sell the first one. Mm -hmm. And so for a little bit of cash flow and to help us out, I started a restaurant right here called 96 Winery Road. And that still operates today. My brother runs the restaurant. And it's a fun place. It's casual. And it's great wine and eating. So a number of, a number of options around here. There's a great little Chinese restaurant which is almost just a hole in the wall in Somerset West, where we go to, and the food is immaculate. And it's a kind of absolutely casual place. You're kind of not sure you could take all your friends there. It's not that, not that fancy. Oh, but yeah. the food is so good. I'll take anybody. I don't really? food is good. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I also heard, uh, and I can't, I can't remember who that other winemaker was that I spoke to, uh, who also um, um, mentioned Nuertuk, um, the the food barn? Yeah, so yeah, that's uh, great. I mean, the man is a genius, down to earth, humble. Ken, this was so wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I absolutely love what you're doing. 
You're also on my bucket list. I'm coming to South Africa and I'm going to take I'm coming to hear the story of all your wines. <laughs> Make sure you've got time. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Just tell them you're gonna be late. <laughs> I'm spending the day with you. All's <laughs> <Those> marks. <laughs> no, no, but um, but and and whenever you come to Vienna. Please remember me. I shall. I can, only you, I can only offer you coffee in one of our wonderful coffee houses. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. One of my fondest memories goes back to Hillbrow as a child. There was a restaurant in Hillbrow called Café Vienne. Oh, really? Yeah. And that was the finest, finest chocolate cake that I'd ever come across. You have no idea that Café Vienne. They did apple strudel emanated chocolate. Mm. It was just to die for. And who knows who the chef, I think the chef was a fellow called Fritz Fletcher. Mm. Fritz Fletcher, and he came out to South Africa on the opening team of the Carlton Hotel in Johannesburg oh, in really? 1974. That's how far back that goes. Wow, that's that's amazing. I mean, this is um, and Carlton. I remember at that time I was still in South Africa, but I have the Carlton. I remember, yeah. So, but um, but have, have a, a wonderful, yeah. <laughs> but have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you, and the same and to you. And hopefully, see you soon. Lovely, and look forward <laughs> to it. Thank you. Lovely to meet. You. Thank you for your time. Okay, Ken. Uh, bye. Bye. -bye.